0: Father, Psalm 56 tells us to cast our burden upon the Lord and he will sustain you. And, and that marginal note that I saw a few years ago really caught my attention where it said, cast what he has given you. Upon him, and he will sustain you. The fact of the matter is, Lord, that when we're burdened, when we're afflicted, when we're in a season that's hard, when we've had loss, ultimately it comes from you. All things come from you because you're sovereign over all things. You give. Job said, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. You use uh, prosperity in our lives, and we thank you for it, but you use adversity as well. And that, that Job verse doesn't say the Lord gives and Satan takes away. It says the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. You're sovereign over it all. Sometimes we take things away from our kids because we've given them something prematurely. It, it's more than they can handle. It, uh, it's, it's, it, it just was the wrong time. Maybe a year or so down the road, it would be fine to give it to them, but they're not ready for it. Or uh, maybe we've given them too much and it changes their attitude not in the right direction but in the wrong direction and we've got to get their attention so we'll take something away now that's what you do with us sometimes we have burdens that, that are of our own making and by our own poor choices but sometimes we have burdens that just come to us that uh, are from the outside and they're from other people or they're from Well, it could be a multitude of things, but once again, you oversee it all. We we come to you when we're burdened. We come to you when we're overwhelmed. We come to you when we're concerned. We come to you when we're worried. But we're mindful that whatever it is that we're dealing with, you're involved and you're over it and you're in charge of it and you have a purpose in it and that you're mindful of it. it. It's not random, it's not by chance, it's not by accident. Whatever hardship, whatever suffering that, that, that comes into our lives, it is purposeful. It is meaningful. There are lessons to be learned. It's designed to, uh, to change us. It's to, it's, they are designed to work us out in the gymnasium your gymnasium, maybe we're weak in this area, maybe we're weak in this virtue and you want to develop it. So you will work us out. You will work out those muscles of patience. You will work out those muscles of faithfulness. You will work out those muscles of um, being steadfast. Uh, You're our Father, we belong to you. Everything we have comes from you. You've given us eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. You are teaching us. You are maturing us. You've given us the word of God. You've given us the Holy Spirit to illuminate the scriptures. You've given us the church so that we have a community of believers. Uh, Your eye is upon us. And you know where we are each step, each day of life, and you know precisely what we need, and you'll give it to us. So whatever it is that we're struggling with tonight, whatever is on our heart, whatever concern, we cast our burden upon you. We cast it upon you. It ultimately has come from you, and you will sustain us through it and you will teach us and we'll come out on the other end better men. Encourage us with the truth tonight, Lord, as we look at your word. We're living in, um, in days that are more evil than anything we've ever seen. But you knew that before we ever got here. You knew that 10 million years ago. You knew we, where we would be today. So we trust in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We are in Psalm 9 tonight. Tonight will be an introduction. And we do have an outline. I have an outline. I'll be happy to share my two-point outline with you. This one is profoundly simple. So number one... We're going to look at the theme of Psalm 9, and number two, we're going to look at the context of Psalm 9. And we'll pick it up when we get together next time. We'll, we'll get the whole psalm in. But this psalm, the theme of this psalm, Psalm 9, is this. It is praise for God's justice, praise for God's justice among the nations among the nations. What, uh, what, what news sites do you normally read? Whatever news sites you read have a lot of information about what's going on in various nations. And there are a lot of nations, uh, a multitude of nations. What is going on is contrary to what they know in their hearts they should be doing, speaking of the leadership. And there's trouble in the world, and there's friction in the world, and there's fear in the world because of the nations and their leaders. So much of our news and the information we get about current events are about nations. Psalm nine, the theme is praise to God, for God's justice among the nations. Now, what about the context of Psalm 9? The context of Psalm 9, it's one of those, it's another psalm written by David. And he says, I will give thanks to the Lord with all my heart. I will tell of all your wonders. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. So there's your praise. And then in verse three, he says, When my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before you. For you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne judging righteously. Now I'll just stop right there. The, The context of this psalm is that David is the king of Israel, Israel is a nation. David and Israel had enemies in their day, and modern day Israel has enemies in this day. We, it helps us to know that Israel is a small country. The King Ranch in Texas is 1,200 square miles. Before 1967, before the 67 war, Israel was 8,000 square miles. So, to get a grip on the size of Israel, think King Ranch, or think Rhode Island. King Ranch is actually a little bigger than Rhode Island. Rhode Island is not a state. Rhode Island is a farm. But that's another story. I'm not worried about email from Rhode Island tonight because I don't think there's anybody there. Although there is a capital of Rhode Island that I've been to called Providence because the guy who founded it believed that the providence of God had led him there, Roger Williams. So right now I repent of what I just said about Rhode Island come to think of it. The king ranch is bigger than Rhode Island. The nation of Israel, well, think of Israel this way. Take the king ranch and then take uh, roughly six more king ranches. Put them together. and You've got Israel. It's a small country and they're surrounded by enemies. When you read your news sites, when you read your newspaper, is it not amazing how often a little tiny nation is um, almost every day in the headlines, almost every day? That's not chance, that's not coincidence. It's the plan of God. Israel is small, but they are a major part of God's plan. When the Lord Jesus comes back, he's gonna touch down in Israel. He's gonna touch down and he's gonna split the Mount of Olives in half. Uh, it's, that's going to be something. And then there's a timetable and things occur but eventually he will bring a new heaven, a new earth and a new Jerusalem. So Israel is small but Israel is strategic. But in David's day they were surrounded by enemies and In our day, they're surrounded by enemies. I came across an article concerning the Six-Day War of 1967. And this article was written by David Pinner. And the the article title is The Six-Day War Recognizing the Miracle. Some of us remember the Six-Day War. Once again, Israel was small and they were outnumbered. They were vastly outnumbered. The odds were against them. In his article, he mentioned several facts. We'll just peruse them quickly. He says, a two-front war is every general's night- nightmare. Being forced to split the armed forces has been the downfall of countless, seemingly invincible armies. In June of 1967, Israel was faced with a three-front war along the borders with Jordan, Syria, and Egypt. There was technically a fourth front, the border with Lebanon. After firing a few token shots and sending two British-built hunter fighter jets, which were shot down almost immediately, Lebanon withheld from further fighting. The Lebanese army remained mobilized on Israel's northern border However, forcing Israel to keep an active force along that front. So here's a a small nation, incredibly outnumbered. And they're fighting not on two fronts, not on three, but they're fighting on four. So their forces were split. Small forces to begin with, they're split four ways. He goes on and says, more than this, the Israeli military was outnumbered on all fronts and in all services. Israel could field a total strength of 264,000 soldiers. This included all of their reserves and could not therefore be sustained for any length of time without destroying the economy. Facing them were 525,000 Arab soldiers. Israeli tanks were outnumbered by more than three to one. 800 Israeli tanks faced 2,424 Arab tanks. The Israeli Air Force could field 350 aircraft, outnumbered almost three to one by 939 Arab aircraft. Gamal Abdel Nasser, the dictator of Egypt, was proclaiming its forthcoming triumph, the Arab countries, against Israel was proudly trumpeting the imminent annihilation of Israel and the massacre of all her citizens, the Jewish ones, that is. Israel was preparing to fight for her very existence and projecting, in a best-case scenario, some 10,000 dead, maybe up to 50,000, if she survived at all. Plans were made to turn national parks into mass cemeteries, even as school children were given canvas sacks and started shoveling sand into, the, uh, into them to defend their homes. The result is history. In six days, Israel captured the entire entire Sinai desert, including the Gaza Strip, from Egypt. They captured Judea and Samaria, Judea and Samaria, and half of Jerusalem from Jordan, and the Golan Heights from Syria. Instead of being annihilated, she had more than tripled her territory from 8,000 square miles to 26,000 square miles. All this came at a heavy price, 776 Israeli soldiers were killed, 2,586 wounded, but nothing near the projections that they were expecting. The very fact that Israel survived was a miracle. That we not merely survived, Penner says, who is Jewish, but won a decisive victory, infinitely more miraculous. Indeed, a West Point general once remarked that though the US Military Academy studies war, wars fought throughout the world, they do not study the Six-Day War because what concerns West Point is strategy and tactics, not miracles. That's very good. In Genesis 12, God made a covenant with Abraham. He says, those who honor you, I will honor. Israel is part of God's plan. Their eyes are darkened. They reject Jesus as Messiah, although there are exceptions. But one day, their eyes will be opened. In the context of Psalm nine, we had the theme, and and the theme is praise for God's justice among the nations. David had all those nations. Uh, They were giving thanks to God in 1967 for God's goodness and God's justice in that war. In Psalm nine, there, There are a couple of verses that are core verses that are keynote verses to the entire psalm, verses 7 and 8. I'm not even going to read the entire psalm tonight because it's 20 verses long. Tonight we're doing theme and we're doing context. Verse 7 and 8 of Psalm 9, but the Lord abides forever. He has established his throne for judgment. And he will judge the world in righteousness. The world is comprised of nations, all right? He will judge the world in righteousness. He will execute judgment for the peoples with equity. His judgments are true. His judgments are right. No one will ever be able to say to God, that's not fair because God is good. And he is righteous, he is just, he makes no mistakes. What's the theme? Praise for God's justice among the nations. Five times in this psalm, he refers to the nations. Five times. If you'll note verse five. You have... David says, rebuked the nations. In verse 15, the nations have sunk down in the pit which they have made. If you look at verse 17, the wicked will return to Sheol even all the nations who forgot God. Verse 19, arise O Lord, do not let man prevail Let the nations nations be judged before you. This is a great psalm. I love verse 20. The last verse, speaking of the nations. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are but men. So, You've got the nations in verse 5, you've got the nations in verse 15, you have the nations in verse 17, and in 19, and in 20, all right? That last verse, put them in fear, O Lord, let the nations know they are but men. Uh, I have a note in my Bible that I put in, Isaiah 2.22, that kind of ties into that last Verse. So Isaiah 2.22 simply says this, stop regarding man whose breath of life is in his nostrils. That's kind of blunt. Stop regarding man. Stop being worried. Stop being anxious. Uh, Stop being intimidated by man, any man, any leader, anybody in your life that has authority and is using it wrongly. Stop regarding man whose breath of life is in his nostrils, for why should he be esteemed? The one to esteem is God. Any man, any powerful man, uh, they are utterly dependent on God. They cannot breathe without God, Acts 17. Makes this very, very clear. We, we just tend to think, well, I mean, that's, there's nothing theological about breathing. There's nothing biblical about breathing. Actually, I mean, actually, there is. You can't breathe by yourself. Breath comes from God. Life comes from God. Acts 17, Paul is speaking to the Greeks in Athens, and they've got all these statues And they've got all these idols, they're everywhere. And Paul says, uh, verse 22 of Acts 17, So uh, Paul stood up in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. Uh, For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, I'll proclaim to you. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. There you go. Breath comes from God verse 26 and he made from one man every nation of mankind there are the nations and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth having determined their appointed times and boundaries of their habitations so the nations you know you have the rise and fall of nations he he set their timelines he he oversees Uh, The beginning, the middle, and the end, not only for people, but for nations. He's God. He's sovereign. He's in absolute control. 27, that they would seek God, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him, in him, we live and move and exist. Life comes from God, breath comes from God. Why do you esteem men whose breath is in their nostrils? <laughs> I don't know, I just like that. They're just, they're just men, they're just creatures. They're made in the image of God, sure. But if you wanna esteem somebody, sometimes we live in fear of men. Sometimes we, we live in dread of men. We live in dread of men who are dictators and and they have power and they uh, are against the gospel and against God and against God's truth and against God's people. Isaiah says, your dread shall be the Lord. If you want to dread somebody, if you want to fear somebody, fear the Lord because he's God, not, not dread of 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 abject terror uh, but but it it is the majesty of God the glory of God the power of God the goodness of God the righteousness of God he's good to all the Lord is good to all the Bible says the rain falls on the just and the what? unjust Unjust. falls on the righteous and it falls on the wicked the Lord is good to all he has all power he has all might he has all wisdom And because of who he is, he will judge the nations. In the book of Daniel, he judges the kings in the first half of Daniel. In the second half, he talks about the future, and Daniel was shown what was gonna come in the future, and every time it would be revealed to him, he, he uh, he would get ill, he would get sick, he would get overwhelmed, he'd have to go to bed, because he was seeing what was gonna happen down through the ages and the angel told him listen this is not your time it's coming it's down the road you write it down the the glory of god god said this is going to happen in the future and it is going to happen in the future it's god's prophetic plan and one of the things that's going to happen you can read daniel and then you read revelation 19, 20, 21, you get get in there, God's going to judge the nations. Sometimes the judgment, he'll judge nations. Uh, There'll be a final judgment of nations, but he'll raise them up, he'll set them down. Sometimes God destroys nations, sometimes God destroys cities. This is our God. See, if you're going to be in dread, if you're going to be in awe, if you're going to, be overwhelmed by someone's power and strength, it should be God and not man. Even if they have the ability to take your life, even if they have the ability to imprison you, just know there are tools in God's hand. And once again, you'll find that in the book of Daniel. Nebuchadnezzar was the most powerful, the greatest king on all the earth. And the Lord took care of him because he thought he was the greatest. He had a sweatshirt that said the greatest. He had a crown that said the greatest. And then he had a dream and he wanted Daniel to interpret the dream and Daniel, the interpretation came to Daniel and Daniel got really worried. Uh, He got a little bit pale. Go ahead and tell me Daniel. Well, you see the problem is king, this, this this, this is about you. If you don't give glory to the most high God, he's gonna give you the mind of an animal. And you're gonna graze in the field for seven years. God judges the nations. Nebuchadnezzar knew about Daniel's God. Because earlier in Daniel, the king had had a dream and by the power of God, Daniel interpreted the dream and none of his wise men could interpret the dream. The king was so disturbed by this dream in Daniel 2, this is a different dream now. He was so disturbed by this dream that he got all his wise men together and he said, I had this dream and listen, normally uh, I tell you the dream and then you guys get together and come up with an interpretation. I'm not doing that. I'm not messing around with you guys. This scared me to death. It, I, I, listen, you're so smart, you tell me what I dreamt. And they start shaking. And, uh, and Lord, we, we, we can't do it. If you don't do it, I'm gonna tell you limb from limb. King, I mean, King, listen. We can't do it. Verse five of two, the king replied to the Chaldeans, the command for me is firm. If you don't make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you'll be torn from limb to limb and your houses will be made of rubbish sheep. And they asked for time and he says, I know you're bargaining for time. Verse 10, the Chaldeans answered the king and said, there's not a man on the earth who could declare the matter to the king. Actually there was this teenage kid that had been kidnapped from Jerusalem with his three buddies, Daniel. So Daniel hears about this, and he and his buddies pray, and the Lord tells them, shows Daniel, what the king dreamt. Verse 19. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a night vision. Why? Why? because God knew what the king dreamt, because God gave him the dream. God has all power. This man's the most powerful man on the face of the earth. He's got nostrils, right? And he's got breath. And that breath comes from somewhere. But you see, he thinks he's independent. He thinks he's great. He thinks he's above everybody. He thinks he doesn't need anybody. He's the self-made man. I've never seen a self-made man that can breathe without God. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a night vision. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel said, let the name of God be blessed forever and ever, for wisdom and power belong to him. How much wisdom does God have? All. How much power does God have? All. It is he who changes the times and the seasons. Uh, Things are changing in our country. Things are changing in the world. Who's behind the change? God. God. He's got a prophetic timetable. He's just working the plan set from before the foundations of the world. He removes kings and establishes kings. He runs the Iowa caucus. (laughs) He runs South Carolina. He runs Vermont. He runs California. He runs it all. Now, we have a responsibility as citizens in this country. You get to vote. So I'm going to vote. I thank God for it. But God oversees the outcome because he, he removes kings and he establishes kings. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to men of understanding. It is he who reveals the profound and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. 23, to you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise for you have given me wisdom and power. And even now you have made known to me what we requested of you. There you go. Don't esteem men, esteem God. And through Christ, we've been adopted into the family of God. We're we're his sons, we have privileges. You get, to, you, and Nebuchadnezzar saw this. And then in, in, in three, he throws Shadrach, Meshach into the fire, and uh, hey, you either bow down or I'm gonna, I'm gonna take your life. And he throws them in there. You know the story. And, they, and, and before they got there, the, 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 the guys, the soldiers that were holding on to them, the soldiers were killed. And then they throw them into the fire Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who esteemed God and didn't esteem men, they weren't afraid for their lives because their life was in God's hands. He said, I'm gonna throw you in the fire. You're gonna lose your life. In in 3 of 16, Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter, whether we're gonna bow down or not. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he doesn't, let it be known to you O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. We're not going to do it. Kill us. King got upset. 22, says, make make the fire even hotter. They They threw him in. 24, the Nebuchadnezzar, the king, was astounded and stood up in haste. He said to his officials, was it not three men we cast bound into the midst of the fire? Yes, certainly, O king. Look, 25, I see four men loosed and walking about in the midst of the fire without harm and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. You're not quite right. He's the son of God. His name is Jesus. (laughs) This stuff is real. This stuff is true. That's our God. Then he pulls the guys out and they're all looking at him in verse 27 and they gathered around and saw in regard to these men that the fire had no effect on the bodies of these men nor was the hair of their head singed nor were their trousers damaged nor had the smell of fire even come upon them. So you don't need to stay up all night worrying about details of what might happen. God's already got the details figured out down to no smell of fire on them, no singe on the trousers. That's our God. Nebuchadnezzar still doesn't get it in chapter 4. And then he tells the story, he's walking around, verse 4, he's walking around Babylon, look at this great city I've built, look at this you know, wonderful thing I've done, I'm so great, I'm so wonderful. Um, There's a dream, Daniel says um, in verse 19, Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was appalled for a while when he finds out, and he said, my Lord, if only the dream applied to those who hate you, but it applies to you. Look at verse 24 of uh, 4. This is the interpretational king and this is the decree of the most high which which has come upon my lord the king that you be driven away from mankind and your dwelling place be with the beasts of the fields and you be given grass to eat like cattle and be drenched with the dew of heaven and seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the most high is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. Therefore straighten out your life and submit to the king But he didn't, and in 28, all this happened to Nebuchadnezzar the king. Twelve months later, he's walking on the roof of the royal palace. He says to himself, "Is this not Babylon, the great which I myself have built as royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty. And while the word was in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared, sovereignty has been removed from you. Just like that. 33, immediately the word concerning Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from mankind and began eating grass like a cattle. The greatest man in the world is hanging out with Angus. And he was that way for seven years. 34, but at the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards heaven and my reason returned to me. Why did his reason return to me? To return to him? Because God gave it to him. That's in God's hands. Not only breath, but reason. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. What happened? This guy got saved. He had an encounter with the sovereign God who judges kings and judges the nations. Psalm 9 is all about God's judgment of the nations. Last week, uh, uh, I was watching the Mavericks or something. I was tired. I couldn't read anymore. I'm just, you know, watching them. I come in the kitchen. Mary's got her laptop, and there's music. And I, this music sounds familiar. I said, who is that? She, she said, Sandy Patty. Sandy Patty. There's a blast from the past. Singing at a concert, thousands of people, 1986, with a guy named Lornell Harris, two of the greatest singers in the world. And they're singing... Um, that's not what they were singing. Larnell sings that, and they do too. But they were singing. You want to go for 50? <laughs> they were singing. <laughs> uh, He's so wonderful. And she just finished it. And I said, Hey, play that. I, I, and you remember when we went to that concert and saw them in the 80s? And oh, yeah, yeah. So she played it through, and It was unbelievable. And I said, There was another one they did. Um, and over on the right, you know, they got other videos. And she said, oh, there it is. There's their other one. Um, and there it was. She said, play that one. So she played that one. They were unbelievable. And you remember that concert and how old were the kids? And where's the And all of a sudden I look down on the screen and John MacArthur's staring at me. I thought, what's he doing there? Well, he was the next guy up in the video. John MacArthur, to my knowledge, is not a singer but he's a pretty good Bible preacher. And, and Mary said, what's that? And I said, what does it say on the bottom? And she said, uh, what is that title? Yeah, the title is Homosexuality in the Campaign for Immorality. <clears throat> it was about 10, 15, she said, and I had been tired when I walked in. She said, you want me just to shut it down? Uh, let's see, we want to watch a little bit of this. So, we watched the whole thing. And he hadn't gotten into too much of it, and I'm thinking, this is Psalm nine. This is all about Psalm nine. Only, he goes to Romans one. Now we're in Frisco, Texas. Downtown Dallas is, what would you say, how far away? 20 miles, 25, 30? short drive (laughs) doesn't take long to get to downtown Dallas now you can also get to downtown Dallas from Frisco by going through Oklahoma City (laughs) can you not? yeah it's just a little longer drive I'm going to interrupt Psalm 9 to go to Romans 1 and read some of MacArthur's comments because you see they tie in with God's what's the theme of Psalm 9 the theme of Psalm 9 is praise for God's judgment among the nations so in Romans 1 18 down to 30 it's a long section but it explains where we are right now in this nation it explains where Canada is it explains where Europe is. It explains uh, where the UK is. uh, Where Australia is. Verse 18 of Romans 1. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So they know the truth, but they suppress it. How do they know the truth? Next verse. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. So God writes the truth of himself on the heart of every human being. We know that he's there, it's on our hearts. 20, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen. When we see the stars, the sun, the moon, we look through the Hubble telescope, all of that, those are the fingerprints of God. We know he's there because it's clearly seen. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened, darkened. We'll come back to that. Professing to be wise, they became fools. Why? Because they do not acknowledge God who is there. The God they know is there. Professing to be wise, they became fools, exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four footed animals and crawling creatures. Some nations they worship idols in the form of animals. Say, well, we don't do that in America. No, but we have the National Geographic Channel. We have documentaries, earth. We see the pelicans, we see the penguins in the Arctic making their way down and coming back. They got a documentary on those penguins, it's amazing. But there's nothing in there about God. You got the whales, you got the great white sharks, you got this, you got everything. Nothing in there about God, that's idolatry. They're worshiping the creature rather than the the creator. 24, therefore, because of all of this, because they suppress the truth and don't acknowledge God, therefore, God gave them over. In the lust of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever and ever. Amen. 26, for this reason, God gave them over. To degrading passions for their women, exchange the natural functions for that which is unnatural. And in the same way, also the men abandon the natural function of the woman and burn in their desire towards one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. The due penalty. 28, and just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do the things which are not proper. Being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. That's the United States of America. A great portion of it. So, I spent some time trying to write down MacArthur's comments on this opening section, and then I realized, and I mean, I'm writing, I'm writing. And then I thought, I wonder if they got a transcript. (laughs) They got a transcript. Let me read to you his comments that he gave in that message. Earlier earlier in the service, I read from the first chapter of Romans what is really a very, very shocking portion of Scripture just to remind you that Romans chapter 1, verses 18, 32, watch this, describes the wrath of God that is unleashed in the world. Who's in the world? People and nations. The wrath of God is divided into a number of elements. There's different kinds of Different aspects to the wrath of God. There is, big word, eschatological wrath. That means last days, prophecy. That is the wrath that will fall on the earth at the end of human history. It's a time called the time of tribulation. Then there is sowing and reaping wrath. Whatever a man shall sow, that shall he reap. That is the wrath of God that comes consequent on sin. Whatever a man sows, he reaps. Then there is cataclysmic wrath. That is the wrath of God that he sets on man from miraculous use of the natural order such as the flood or any other massive disaster that catapults souls into eternity. So there is that wrath of God which is eschatological, which is consequential, and which is cataclysmic. And then there is that wrath of God which is eternal wrath and that would be the wrath of God unleashed on the ungodly forever in the punishments of eternal hell. But the wrath being referred to in Romans 1 isn't any of those, it is the wrath of abandonment. The wrath described here is the wrath that is executed when, according to verse 24, 26, and 28, when God gives them over, gives them over In in other words, it's when God, catch this, abandons a nation. It's when God abandons a society and gives them over to the consequences of their behavior, which is escalating iniquity and disaster, leading to judgment. This wrath of God is released from heaven, revealed from heaven, verse 18 says, against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth. And he goes on to say that all have the truth. The truth is visible from creation. You can know something of God and his nature and from the heart. Romans 2 says that the law of God is written in the heart. But when man abandons God as revealed in creation, when man abandons God as revealed in conscience, when man abandons God as revealed in Holy Scripture, suppressing the truth, God judges that society. And though that society may consider itself to be wise, in reality, <clears throat> it is the ultimate ship of fools. The heart becomes dark. Catch this, catch this. The heart becomes darkened when God is abandoned and then God abandons the darkened heart. What you see in Romans chapter one is the sequence of, about what happens when God abandons a nation, judges a nation, Psalm 9. First, verse 24 says, he gives them over to the lust of their hearts to impurity, sexual sin, the dishonoring of their bodies among them. When God abandons a society, the first thing that happens is it becomes pornographic. It becomes obsessed with sex, obsessed with fornication, adultery, every kind of sexual behavior. We've gone through that already in the sexual revolution some decades ago. By the way, he preached this in 2012. The second thing that happens when God abandons a culture is found in verse 26. God gave them over to degrading degrading passions. Their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. In the same way, also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire towards one another, men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. Once again, I'm quoting from John MacArthur on Romans 1. At the end of that verse, receiving in their persons the due penalty is the diseases that come consequent to homosexual behavior. As you know, they unleashed on the world the horror of AIDS, but what it's saying here is that when God abandons a nation or a culture under his wrath, there will be a sexual revolution followed by a homosexual revolution. We're living in this very condition. There's a third step, verse 28. God gave them over to a depraved mind. That's a mind that doesn't function. They can't think right. And so life becomes filled with unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, envy, murder. We talked about that last week, MacArthur says. The massive murder of millions and millions of unborn infants in the womb that is carried on in our country and around the world. Also characteristic of this depraved mind is that they became became haters of God haters of God, we're living in the outpouring of the wrath of God in the, catch this, we're living in the outpouring of the wrath of God in the category of his abandoning a culture, and we're living in the sequence that is here, a sexual revolution, a homosexual revolution, a reprobate mind that unleashes everything, including murder on a massive scale and hate towards God. I, I, I've heard MacArthur over the years, I first heard him when I was uh, 20 years old. I'm now 70. He's 80. He's not political. He, He didn't talk politics. Listen to this. It was shocking to me a few weeks ago, and this is 2012, as I said last Sunday, to see that these very things that God hates and that bring down God's judgments were affirmed as part of the Democratic Party platform. open sex with government-provided contraception, murder of babies and wombs, God left out of the platform, and homosexual behavior, even advocating homosexual marriage, and oxymoron, since that's impossible. He goes on. But my time doesn't. He, uh, he goes on. And basically says in 2012, and this is where I never having heard him make a political statement, he goes on to say Romans 1 is the platform of the Democratic Party. That which God condemns, they approve. And that was eight years ago. And then he made some statement that if that's your party affiliation, you may wanna give it some thought. And now here's where we are with that party. We have the senators last week who shot down the bill that would save the lives of babies who survived abortion. Doctors would be mandated to give them medical help and save their lives. Democratic senators, either 43 or 41, killed that bill. It's legal to kill a baby who is alive. In other states, but Virginia today, the governor of Virginia who is a pediatrician who's all for killing babies who survive abortion. And you saying now, Steve, you're getting political. No, this is Bible. He came out and said in regard to kids that are struggling with same-sex attraction or they feel they're transgendered, what we covered on Sunday, that are struggling with that, it is now against a law to try and persuade them other than going that direction it's against the law they've been given over to a reprobate mind to a depraved mind and then MacArthur said you know I preached on Romans 1 last week and I got some email. And they, some said, uh, uh, you're, uh, what you're saying is hate speech. Saying, he said, Romans one is not hate speech. Romans one is love speech. Because if someone is on this course and they're on their way to hell forever, It is loving to tell them the truth about God and tell them about Jesus and that their sins can be forgiven and that they can be given eternal life and they can be given a new heart and they can be changed. Beckett Cook, big time Hollywood set designer, big time, goes all over the world. Grew up in Dallas, raised in a Catholic home, went to Catholic schools, went to LA, got into the whole gay scene, making a lot of money, hanging out with the big people. 10 years ago, he's at a Bible, he's at a, having lunch with his gay partner at a nice restaurant in West Hollywood. The table next to him, there's a guy with an open Bible. And then some other people show up, they're carrying Bibles. And he and his buddy are looking over there, are those Bibles? Because you see people with open Bibles in restaurants in Dallas, but not in West LA, not in Hollywood. And they're kind of watching them, and you know, and they're studying. And so later, most of them got up, and he's still there with his friend, and he looked over at the guy, and he said, "Uh, excuse me, is is that a Bible? And the guy said, yeah, it's a Bible, we're doing Bible study. He said, wow. He said, yeah, that's, wow. He said, we don't see that often or something, you know. The guy said, yeah, yeah, we're part of a church here in L.A. And Beckett said, so your church, do you guys think homosexuality is a sin? And he said, yes, the Bible says homosexuality is a sin. And and he said, I appreciated his honesty and uh, his candor. I knew homosexuality was a sin. And that's why I figured God could never, I mean, I was, I was for me and God, it was over. <clears throat> but he said, "Yeah," and then he went on and said, "Yeah, you know, I actually um, struggle with same-sex attraction." Beckett said, "You did?" He goes, "Yeah." And uh, he said, "But I'm part of this church over here, at Reality LA. You know where the Scientology headquarters are?" He goes, "Yeah." He said, "We're not, we're right next door." Oh, yeah. Come and see us sometime. You know, just real no big deal, no pressure. All that week, he thought about going to that church. Every time he thought about me, I'm not going, I'm not going. He went by himself. And at the end of that service, he had a Damascus Road experience with Jesus. He didn't see a vision. He didn't see Jesus. But there was a conviction. I have read his book. There was a convicting power of sin that came over him and that he needed Christ and Christ was the only way as the pastor had just read in the scriptures. He asked for prayer, he went home, he couldn't get out of bed for two days. And he's been completely changed. He's still a Hollywood set designer, very very successful. But he's a committed Christian, He has walked away from sexual immorality, gotten a master's degree in theology at Talbot Seminary in Los Angeles, and uh, like Christopher Yuan that I mentioned on Sunday, and Rosaria Butterfield delivered out of homosexuality, she out of lesbianism, Walt Heyer delivered out of transgenderism, add to it Beckett Cook, 1 Corinthians 6, 9. That list, the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God, neither fornicators, nor adulterers, nor homosexual, nor effeminate, or swindlers, or slanderers, and such were some of you. But you were washed and you were cleansed. This is what Jesus does. He changes lives. This is hard for some here because you may have a prodigal who's off into something like this and it breaks your heart. I want to close by encouraging you. The story of the prodigal son is in the Bible for a reason. For a reason. And I believe it's, is it 1 Samuel 12? Yeah. In 1 Samuel 12, there's a great, there's a great verse, and we often wonder if, if, if a, uh, you know, you've raised a child, a son, a daughter, and they're off over here, or off over of there, and transgenderism, or they're here and they're here, and it's just the culture is just so overwhelming. Is there any hope? And you're discouraged. For Samuel 12, Samuel said, "Far be it from me to sin against the Lord, and to cease praying for you." What do you do? You just keep praying. You just keep praying. Somebody was praying for Beckett Cook. It was his sister in law. Prayed for him for years. She just kept praying for him. Lord, bring him in. Bring him in. Bring him in. Christopher Yuan's mother was praying for him. Do whatever it takes. Keep praying. Keep praying. God loves to save sinners. Look around. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your truth. Thank you that you judge the nations and you judge individuals, but you sent Jesus so that we would not have to enter into judgment, but receive eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Do the work in the lives of those whom we love that are prodigals that only you can do, and reel them in with your grace that is irresistible. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.